album is finally released. It's called Spooky Fingers. It's from the band Genki Genki Panic. The song you're hearing right now is Two Girls, One Casket. It appears on this podcast. With their permission, check them out at GenkiGenkiPanic.Bandcamp.com when you're done listening to Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm excited to have you along for this episode, episode 258 of the podcast, the home of classic monsters, Modern Talk. And the guest that I have coming on the show this week is somebody who's never appeared on Monster Kid Radio before, but if you listen to a particular movie podcast or if you used to listen to a particular writing podcast, you've heard him before. He's no stranger to the potosphere. His name is Justin McCumber. He is the founder of the Dead Robot Society podcast, and he was with that writing program for years. He is still part of the Hollywood Outsider podcast, and he's on this episode of MKR to talk about one of his favorite films. We're talking about Dracula. Yeah, the original. I cannot believe it's taken me 258 episodes to devote a chunk of time to this film. This very important film in monster kid dumb, in horror dumb, in all a film dumb period. Now, the conversation that I had with Justin, it starts with us talking about Dracula. But as the conversation continued, it grew to include, well, more than just Dracula. You're going to have to stay tuned to hear what I'm talking about. And after that, I'm going to tell you why March 9th is super important to us monster kids. You know what? We're going to actually start calling that a holiday. Yeah, it's an official, but you know what? It's a monster kid holiday, and I'm going to tell you why. But that's all at the end of the show. That's after we talk to Justin, after we talk about Dracula, after this. this program to bring you the following special announcement. The world's first horror head transplant has failed, and five brain donors have died in the experiment. Now you can see it all at your local theater in Beast of Blood, and on the same show, Curse of the Vampires, both brand new in gory color. You'll see a mad fiend transplant human heads in the Cave of Horrors, and encounter stunning, screaming, shocking terror as it lives. A monster's head detached from its body, causing savage and inhuman destruction. More fantastic than science, more shocking than fantasy, the creature without a head, controlled by an insane artificial brain, Beast of Blood. Don't miss Beast of Blood and Curse of the Vampires, both rated GP. Hi, this is Ruby. And I'm Hater. And we host the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. A podcast based on Christopher R. Mim, a Minnesota filmmaker who's got eight films under his belt, soon to be nine. And they're all 1950s-style black-and-white movies. The podcast revolves around actors, the making of the films, and various other little fun bits. And technicians. (laughs) You can find us at SaintEuphoria.com. Or like us on Facebook. That would be the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. Hope you tune in. How much shock can you take? It will haunt you forever. 
from the depths of evil comes the diabolic killer of beautiful women. The Vampire's Coffin. See a vampire's body stolen from its tomb. A psycho killer removes the stake so the vampire can again prey on beautiful women. And to complete a double night of horror, a monster's nightmare of terror turned loose in a fight to the death. The robot versus the Aztec mummy. They will bring you a night of terror. Them, but don't come alone. The Vampire's Coffin in an all-new double horrorama show with The Robot versus the Aztec Mummy. Presented in Hypnoscope. The height and the horror. Shock your senses. Chill your brain. It could only be shown at midnight. He's an author of urban fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And if the pictures that I see him post on Facebook occasionally of his action figures of universal monsters, he's a monster kid. Justin McCumber, <laughs> welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Well, thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me on. You know, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. We chatted a little bit before we started recording, but I'm going to say it here publicly on the show. Thank you for making the time to appear on the show. Please, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Justin is a longtime podcaster. He is the founder of the Dead Robot Society podcast. He's no longer on that show, but he still can be heard on the Hollywood Outsider podcast. So we'll make sure there's links to those in the show notes when we're done here. Thank you. Really appreciate that. And I'm guessing, yes, Monster Kid, that's accurate? Yes. I have been wanting to have Justin on the show for a while, but when he posted some pictures of his Universal Monster figures, they asked him which one was his favorite. He asked, movie or figure? And I'm like, okay, this is a conversation we need to have on the show. Do <laughs> <laughs> you remember what you said when I asked you? I think that I said, figure-wise, the creature from the Black Lagoon was my favorite. Mm -hmm. But movie-wise, it has to be Dracula. I mean, the creature... People who listen to the show, people who know me because I won't stop talking about it, know that Creature is my favorite film, period, hands down. No. No. Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon. In 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams, every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release, rated G. I love that film. It's my favorite movie. And the creature is a great design and makes an awesome action figure. But Dracula, man, I would be willing to say that without Dracula, we wouldn't have the horror genre as we know it today. Probably not, no. I am... Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look, 
Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms and he made me drink. Super important film. The first modern horror movie, the first talkie. Mm-hmm. Without it, no Frankenstein, no Universal, none of that. So, I mean, it's, it's a granddaddy. 1931. Yeah. yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> but it still holds up. It does hold up. And it's surprising when, you know, I rewatched it last night just to kind of re-familiarize myself with it. It had been a little while. You can definitely tell that it is a film of its time. Because you you can't escape the limitations that they had to deal with, that modern moviegoers and modern movie makers don't have to deal with. But even in the face of those limitations, they found ways to bring in the creepiness, to bring in those horror aspects. And after watching it again, it kind of reminds me that, you don't have to have all the whiz bang CGI soaring scores and all that stuff to make a good, effective, scary film with just a little bit of makeup, the right amount of light bouncing into Bella Lugosi's eyes. Oh. Uh, yeah, you can do a lot with that. And it, sometimes I think we, you know, modern film just. They they think more is more, and when it comes to horror, I quite often think less is more. Oh, definitely, and I think there's a classiness to a lot of these films as well. There's a, it's not exploitive. It's it's just a classy, scary, spooky story. Maybe because the genre hadn't been quote unquote defined yet, but it's so moody and evocative. The shadows, the lights, the direction, and you mentioned Bela Lugosi's eyes. I mean, you can't get away from those. Mm-mm. Or when you first see those eyes when he's on the coach. Yeah. I don't know what, what, what he was thinking. I would not get on that coach. <laughs> no, not with, not with a driver. He was all covered up like that. And then that dark face with those eyes just peering out. No, I'm waiting for the next one. Thanks. You can, you can go. <laughs> I, I'm good. I'm good. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm. Or I would have listened to everybody who was begging me not to go. Yeah. The, the one who put the cross around his neck. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. That, there's a sign. Yeah, when you've got an entire town saying, don't go to Dracula's castle, you might want to listen to that. Probably. You know, you mentioned the lack of score. It took me years of watching this movie to realize there's no music except for the credits. There's a little bit of music right in the opening credit. Yep. And then they play a little bit of of music. I think it's Wagner um, in the scene where we first meet Mina and Lucy Mm -hmm. and John Harker. And all that. But there was no actual score score for the movie. And I didn't notice it until probably halfway into it. 
that in all these scenes where in a modern film, suddenly the violins would strike up and the chamber music would really get going to tell you how to feel. Right. I mean, this movie just presented it. And it, in a strange kind of way, it was almost more effective. I love a good movie score. When I write, I always have music playing, whether it's from a movie or a video game. I love the music for these films. But sometimes they can be really to hammer on the head with this is how you should feel. Do you not hear the sorrowful music? Now you must cry too. <laughs> and so to have a film just not dictate your emotions to you, but let you come to the scene as you are, it was kind of refreshing. I agree 100%. And that music, even though Swan Lake wasn't necessarily written for that ooh spooky crowd, I can't hear that music now without thinking Dracula and maybe The Mummy, but Dracula in particular. <laughs> right. You know, it's just so perfect. And you're right. You don't need that score. I'm a film score guy, too. I mean, I think you and I maybe even chatted about that a little bit on Facebook. I listen to film scores nonstop. It's all I listen to during the day, typically. I love them. And I love my horror movie scores quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they are a little too on the nose. Well, I think every genre. Sure. That, whether it's romance films with you know, as soon as the guitars and violins start up or the drums in an action film, they all – try to push you towards a certain emotional feeling as though they're just trying to tell you feel this way now and it's it gets annoying sometimes the best scores are the ones you don't necessarily notice while you're watching the movie anyway so sometimes and with this one you don't even need it like you said it's got so much more going for it you know it's interesting because it's in early hollywood and it's Todd Browning directing, who's known mostly for the silent films that he did with Lon Chaney Sr. This film does feel like it's got that silent film aesthetic in a lot of places, but it's still kind of moving on, transitioning film into this other, I don't know, evolution, this next step in film mm -hmm. history. I feel like it walks this nice line between the silent era and what we're getting into in the 30s and 40s. I agree. And of course, Bela Lugosi is amazing what's funny is that i think people have over the years have camped up his performance so much that when you go in to watch it you're kind of expecting this oh the children of the night what sweet music they make kind of overdone production his actual performance isn't that over the top i i think you know he, he takes it to where it needs to be that kind of a transylvanian count aristocracy kind of character but he doesn't i don't think he overplays it as much as people like to pretend he overdoes it or play it up themselves i agree i think there is a little bit of alienness to him and it needs to have it i mean he's a foreigner he's an outsider he's a vampire for crying out loud so there has to be a little bit of alienness to him which does come across maybe in some of the interactions he has with the other characters but it's not campy. It just is different and intriguing and mysterious. Mm -hmm. And for better or worse, this pretty much made his career. I wonder, though, how much his hands had to hurt after doing all those <laughs> arched finger as he's mesmerizing someone. He kind of gets this Emperor Palpatine lightning strike with the fingers <laughs> kind of pose as he slowly walks towards someone or pulls them to him with his hypnotic abilities, even just doing it for a couple of seconds, because all of a sudden my, my knuckles hurt. And he must have had to do it for a long time. You, know, you think about what happened with him in his later life, and of course he was on painkillers because that had to hurt. I mean, other things as well, sure. But I mean, the first time you see him in the movie, his hands creeping out of the coffin in that position. And mm -hmm. 
I mean, I know they joke about it in the 1994 film Ed Wood about how you must be double jointed and Hungarian, but man, it's just so <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> now, maybe a second or two, and then oh, all right, got to massage my fingers. And to be able to deliver these performances with these pin lights in your eyes. Yeah, it, when I watched it this time kind of refreshing my memory and i i noticed that the lights were always a little bit off from his eyes mm-hmm. it kind of made me wonder for a split second why are they doing that and then i realized oh because he would be blinded <laughs> if you just put these lights straight in his eyes so you just put them you know just a little bit off but it still feels like because his eyes are still catching some of that light off of his cheek or, or uh the side of his face and it, it still works but it's not overly done once again but i think the thing i like most about this dracula is that it doesn't do what so many vampire movies do, did afterward which was to really over explain every aspect of what a vampire is or what they can do this film just really presents things without a lot of that exposition and there are, you know there are a few moments where van helsing will explain you know, the, the wolf's bane or the sun rising, something like that. But he never, you, you don't get these moments where everybody just sits to talk about how are we going to fight Dracula? What do these things mean? It's just, it's presented as though you're just seeing what happens. We're not going to give you a lot of background detail. And I appreciate that because a lot of movies go way overboard when they go to explaining what their monster is about and, how to defeat it and, and such. Yeah, there's not really an exposition dump or an info dump. And that's actually something that I feel like has influenced you as a creator. In your book, Stillwater, you don't get to, this is how the monster works, you know? And that, I think, lends itself to the creepiness and the horror. It just is. Yeah, I, I've never been a big fan of, of heavy exposition, no matter what the story or genre was. You know, whether it's science fiction and someone trying to tell me in detail how their faster than light ship works or fantasy trying to tell me, you know, what all the different countries and who runs them and what their issues are with the other countries or so on and so forth. That's why I have a really hard time. I, I, I could not get past the first Game of Thrones books. Oh. Because the exposition level that George R. R. Martin goes to is – I just – I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> I'm too old. <laughs> Listen to you. <laughs> My time is far too limited for me to sit here while you please yourself with all of your exposition that you uh, came up with while you were writing your book, while you were researching your book. I don't need to know all the things you know. Just tell me the few things that I do need. Anything more than that, and you're starting to drag your story down. Mm-hmm. And I never want the reader to feel like the breaks are being applied just so that I can sit here and, as a writer, sound smart by explaining all the little doodads and bips and bops of whatever it is that I'm doing. I like a, a very smooth story. And exposition is a bump. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you need it. Just can lean in me. And I feel like this movie does it. And I wonder how much of that has to do with its origins as a stage play. Because with a stage play, a lot of times you don't get all the, let's sit down and have a conversation about how vampires work, ladies and gentlemen. Right. So I wonder how much of that has to do with that. It could be. But even with like Creature from the Black Lagoon, I, I, I never 
when I was watching it as a kid and watching it as an adult, there's not a lot of talk about what the creature is, where it came from. No, you know, they're not sitting around throwing out ideas for minutes at a time trying to explain what this creature is. There's no, we got a sample of his blood. Now let's run it under analysis and blah, 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 blah. It's just they're in the Amazon and there is this creature killing people. That's it. That's all you need. See, you and I should have gotten together much sooner because I feel like we're on the same page here. (laughs) (laughs) Only took us 250 plus episodes to get you on the show. Having said that, though, I I did write a short story that was uh, a reimagining of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, A friend of mine had the idea that he wanted to have some writers kind of not modernized, but to to give another take on classic Universal Monsters. And uh, I came to it kind of late, and when one of the only characters left was Creature. But I liked it well enough, and I thought, sure, I'll I'll go ahead and do that. And um, unfortunately, the the project fell through, but I still wrote the story, and it's still out there. And I've got it up on Amazon for like 99 cents. But it's – in that, I do – I don't explain through exposition what creates the monster, but there is a brief opening scene that gives you a clue as to what creates the monster. And then from there, it's just these characters, and I don't go any further in explaining things. So even in short stories, I, I you know, you want to give a little bit but not too much, especially with short stories. I remember you and Paul from the Dead Robot Society talking about that on the Dead Robot Society podcast about this collection of universal reimaginings. And I, I just kept thinking, man, that sounds awesome. I wish I would have known. I could have reached out to somebody and said, I want to do it. It blows my mind that Creature was not picked. I would have been the, would think that'd be the first one somebody would grab. Unfortunately, I think that the Creature gets pretty short shrift. When you're in the company of Dracula and Frankenstein's monster – and the Wolfman, it's kind of hard to stand next to those three and get the same level of attention because I think just as a culture, those three characters are who we've really glommed on to. The mummy to a certain degree, but even the mummy, I think, doesn't really measure up to those others within our culture's awareness. I think if it wasn't for Brendan Fraser, people just wouldn't remember it at all. I don't, I don't want to live in that world, man. Don't, no. No, that's depressing. <laughs> that's really depressing. But if you haven't read that short story, I'd be happy to send it to you. It's, I, I think it's cute. I have, and I was going to mention it as well. Uh, it's oh, called okay. It Came from the Black, 99 cents for your Kindle, Kindle app, whatever. Check or it out. Or if you're in their Prime, it's free. Yeah. Is it part of Kindle Unlimited? Uh, yes, I think so. Excellent. Enough about Creature. I could talk Creature all day. Sure. <laughs> I really, really could. But you know, I want to talk about Dracula because I haven't talked about Dracula proper on Monster Kid Radio. I don't think ever. I mean, we've brought it up a couple of times. But as far as the film goes, wow. I mean, it is still such a moving film. And I'm wondering, did you get a chance to see it when Fathom brought it to the theaters last year? No, oh. I sure didn't. I won't rub it in then. <laughs> <laughs> But it was amazing. Yeah, I would. I really would like to see all of the Universal monster movies on the big screen again. But I, yeah, I just I don't know if I'll ever get that chance. And unfortunately, I didn't get to see Dracula. But I just sometimes I love watching those movies where you get to see. You can see that they had to like like matte paintings. Yes. Or you know, and the, there's this one scene in Dracula where they're on this terrace with Mina and John talking. 
and you could see right behind them that it's basically a painting of this dark outside area because you i mean you could practically see the crease where it hits a corner <laughs> and comes around and a part of you you know wants to laugh but then another part realizes they're doing the best they could do they didn't have you know what we have they they had to have really tight controls because their cameras weren't you know that great their the sound technology wasn't all that great so they really had to control things as much as they could so going out and finding locations to shoot these scenes on would have been expensive and it may have been uh, more trouble than it was worth so within the limitations that they had to work in they they really worked hard and i can't diminish their efforts by taking what they did and and kind of laughing at it now you have to respect because we wouldn't be where we are today for better or worse Mm -hmm. if it wasn't for those early efforts of creating special effects quote unquote right now the mat work in this i think is some of the best too when you look at the classic universal cycle as well as some other movies from that era i mean universal really put their all into making these especially in the 30s these movies look as good as they possibly could Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if it was because the horror genre hadn't been ghettoized yet, if it was just, you know? Yeah. But they really treated these as prestige productions. This one and Frankenstein, I mean, back to back, really put Universal on the map, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. You know, the- what's, what's interesting about Universal, though, is while Dracula was not – oh, gosh, what, what's the word for it? It was still had copyright. Because Bram Stoker's wife was still alive, and she had sued the makers of Nosferatu for copyright infringement. Right. So when Universal wanted to do Dracula, they leapt at the chance to go to her and get actual permission so that they could be the first official Dracula movie made with the permission of the the Stoker family. I love that they went for that version of Dracula that they didn't just make up their own but Mary Shelley's Frankenstein <laughs> wasn't Frankenstein's monster wasn't copyright anymore so what Universal did with him and I'm sure you know this is they what they did to protect their work is they said well we can't copyright the idea of Frankenstein or making the monster but we can copyright our particular version of Frankenstein, you know, with the bolts in the neck, that flat head, those huge shoes, that look, that's actually copyrighted. But anybody can write a Frankenstein story. Your Frankenstein, though, cannot look either through description or if you're making a movie or whatever, cannot look like that 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 Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, not without Universal's permission or involvement. Hammer Films got away with it because they had Universal as a distributor for one of their Hammer Films. And they were totally on board with it from the beginning with Universal giving the okay. But when you see Frankenstein represented, well, even in one of these classic movies from the 40s or 50s, Hammer had to do something different. In the Monster Squad, they had to do something different. Anytime they bring the classic Frankenstein monster out, they've got to do something other than the Universal. Even though the Universal one is not what was in the book at all. Mm -mm. But it's such an iconic go-to point for people who think about Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, and with... Universal and Dracula, when they tried to create a new monster line when they did that Van Helsing movie with Hugh Jackman, 
which don't hate me. I love it. <laughs> I love the music. I'll give it that. It's got a great score. It's stupid and it's silly, <laughs> but there is just something about the exuberance of the the performances in that movie and knowing how much Steven Summers loved Universal's monster movies and wanted to make something for his father that would have brought back hopefully the same feeling that they had when they first watched Universal Movie Monsters together. But what what Universal did was because the character of Van Helsing is not a copyrightable character, they created Gabriel Van Helsing mm-hmm. and then copywrote that hoping that if Van Helsing succeeded, then they could go on and do other monster movies. And that version of Van Helsing is copyrighted. But a lot of people don't realize you can write your own Dracula story. You don't need anybody's permission. It's in the public domain. But if you make a particular version, that you can copyright. And don't let it look like Legosi at all. No. Because th- then you're you're not just tampering with uh, Universal's legacy, but the Legosi family. Bela's son is a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he protects his father's image and, you know, he can right? he can wear a tux. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but if you you give him the the hand thing that we were talking about before and have him talking with a particular accent, just don't get too close. Yeah, don't draw the cape up over the lower half of the face. <laughs> I think it's interesting that a couple of years ago when Universal was putting out or had licensed the monsters to a toy line and they were putting out some new material, I believe there was a lunchbox that had Frankenstein's monster, the mummy, the wolfman. But instead of the Lugosi Dracula, they had the Spanish language version of Dracula on it. <laughs> and I wonder if maybe that had to do with something with the Lugosi estate, not allowing the rights to be used in that way, which I thought was an interesting way to go. Have you seen the Spanish version? I haven't. Oh, I would re- really recommend it. Now, granted, it's no, it's no Lugosi. The guy who they have playing Dracula is not Lugosi at all. But a lot of the other parts, the other cast, the rest of the story, it's just different enough. I, I found it pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It runs a little longer, too. And that was something else that I didn't remember that Dracula was so short. Yeah. 71 minutes. Lean and mean. Today, if they don't make it under two hours, it's now, it's rare. Right. <laughs> and I really think so many movies could benefit from tighter editing. This movie doesn't need that because there is no fat on it. It's a pretty lean and mean 71 minutes, and I respect the heck out of that. Oh, yeah. Even the bits that you might consider, quote-unquote, slow by today's standard, like when Renfield first gets to Dracula's castle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a slow-paced scene. There's no dialogue when he's just kind of wandering through. But what you get to see on the screen during this time, mm-hmm. that set is amazing. That was beautiful. I would have loved to have had an opportunity to just run around in that, hang out, set up a tent, and just live there for a week. Cause it just looks, Take some selfies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In a crypt. Why know? not? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Hasht- I do. Hashtag undead living it up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now it's just gorgeous. And in some scenes you mentioned, sometimes you can see the, the seam between the map painting and the live, but there are others where it just blends so perfectly mm-hmm. into the background. A- absolutely. Especially at the very beginning there with the castle and everything. It just looks gorgeous. Does look good. This movie just takes my breath away every time I watch it. Almost a hundred years old. I know, and it's it still delivers. It still packs a punch. I think so. It really does. Even though it doesn't have the wham bam, you know, action sequence at the end when he's getting staked or whatever, it doesn't need it. And with this film, it was really it was all in the eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, there were no dripping fangs. In fact, I I don't even know if I even saw a fang. There are no fangs. 
you know, it's none of that. It's all this eye work. And when they would put the dark makeup underneath the eye to give them kind of that callowed, withdrawn, undead look, it's actually kind of unnerving, especially when their eyes are so bright mm-hmm. because the light is just kind of sparkling in them, yet it's so dark around them. It's almost like these eyes looking at you from just the shadows. It really does, especially in the case of Dracula, because this film, I feel like, is so close to the silent era still. A lot of the regular, quote-unquote, beauty makeup is kind mm-hmm. of this light, pale, you know, the way a lot of silent movies were. They were kind of white and, and, and kind of pasty looking at times. And then you've got Dracula with this darkness and these bright eyes shooting out. It's effective. And again, I'm, I'm going to use the word alien again. He's got such mm-hmm. an alien look to the humans running around working with him, even when Renfield starts becoming, well, Dracula's, I don't know. Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. His eyes. And that's, again, Dwight Fry was amazing. And the way he, well, he worked his eyes. He did a great eyes. job of conveying that lunacy. Oh, and his laugh. Oh, when that when there's that scene where he starts cackling and that nurse looks at him and then just faints. I'm like, I might have fainted too. He looks kind of scary. Yeah. No, it's great. This is the definitive Renfield as far as I'm concerned. Not only is this the definitive Dracula, this is the definitive Renfield. Yeah. Dwight Fry. I've talked about Dwight Fry on the show in the past. Frankenstein, he was in that as well. He's just an underrated guy, I think, when it comes to these movies. Doesn't get his due. No, I don't think so. And it, right or wrong, it's, it is what it is. But he really delivers. I think the entire cast is pretty solid. The only guy I didn't kind of care for was the man who played Jonathan Harker. David Manners. He was he was a little too oh stiff. Yeah, maybe is the word a little too uh, like a like a Boy Scout, mm-hmm. but just tall. I don't know. There was something about him that I really quite didn't latch on to, but I really liked the guy who played Van Helsing because you know, he's obviously an older gentleman, but there's this look that he gets in his face and the way he stands that really conveys a lot of strength and a, a confidence that he has in his ability to overcome Dracula. And I, I found myself really responding to just that kind of silent power and no, almost a nobility that he had. I really, really enjoyed that. I, I would agree with you 100% on both counts. I mean, I like David Manners okay. I don't like him in this very much. I like him in other movies like The Death Kiss or The Blackhead. He did a couple of films with Lugosi, and I think he's good in The Mummy as well. But Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing steals the screen almost every time he's on it because he's got, like you said, he's got this royal kind of feel. I think that's a perfect way to put it. He's got this knowledge. He has this kind of elder statesman approach and – I mean, if not for Peter Cushing coming along later, I think this would be the definitive Van Helsing. Hey, let's not leave out Hugh Jackman. Well, okay. <laughs> it's my podcast, but okay, fine. <laughs> now, Edward Van Sloan, I like that he came along or came along for the ride for the next film, uh, The Dracula's Daughter in 1936, that he appears as Van Helsing is there in there. He's not as strong. But I think that movie itself isn't that strong either compared to Dracula. I didn't see that one. I did see Son of Dracula, but I never saw The Daughter. I, I, I need to go back and see if that's available. It, it is on uh, the various legacy sets and that sort of thing. I think it's good despite a number of flaws. It, it's no patch on Dracula, of course, but right. you know which ones are. Right. Uh, but Van Sloan does return as Van Helsing in that one. And it does pick up kind of sort of at the end of Dracula. Although all the characters that were at the end scene of Dracula aren't really at the beginning scene of Dracula's Daughter. 
but it's good. It's creepy and it's subversive in its own way. And I'll talk about that at some point, I'm sure, in, you know, in, okay. in full. But, uh, you know, Dracula, um, Van Sloan also turns up in The Mummy. He also turns up in Frankenstein. You know, it's nice to see this elder statesman of classic monster movies kind of hit in the big three of the 30s. Right. I don't know much more about his career outside of that, and that's bad on me. I probably should go back and try to watch some more because he's so good. Are you a fan of films of this era? You know, outside of horror and a little bit of science fiction once you get into the, the 40s and 50s, I, I've not really seen a lot of them. Okay. Um, I, I haven't been – had them presented to me to watch. I mean, one of my favorite films of all time uh, is Casablanca, and it's from 1940. My brother, yeah. I mean, it is pro- outside of Star Wars, probably my favorite film of all time. Wow. Because it, Bogart mm-hmm. is just so good. Everybody involved. And that movie was so good. But unfortunately, most most films of that era I haven't seen and haven't uh, had a chance to go back to. I mean, I can barely keep up with the movies coming out today, it seems like. But I, I definitely don't uh, would like if people have suggestions for films of that era that they think I should see, then I'm more than happy to go see them. If only there was a podcast out there that would tell you about the other classic monster movies from the Well, you know, era, we you might know? have to we might have to cover that <laughs> over on the Hollywood Outsider. If if only there was a podcast now that you could listen to <laughs> Maybe yours? That's been around for two hundred fifty plus episodes. I wonder. Mm. <laughs> I love these movies so much and I love this era as well. And Casablanca, one of the classics, one of the best. Peter Laurie in that is fantastic. And and he's another guy that would turn up in a number of classic monster movies and horror movies. And I Why do you hate me, Rick? <laughs> I need to do a Peter Laurie episode here on Monster Kid Radio. That's what I need to do. Huh. Making a note? Okay. He would have made a good Renfield. I think so. You you did the voice right then. I was like, hmm. The rats, the rats. I could see that or hear that. Thousands, millions. <laughs> I don't know if he could do the laugh, though, the, the Dwight Fry laugh. Cause that yeah, laugh, I don't know. That was good. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, that choice that he made, and I don't know if that was his choice, the director's choice, in the Spanish-language version, that Renfield, he's not nearly as subtle. He's, ah, ha, ha, you know, very over the top <laughs> with his laughter. Might as well have a jester hat on or something. Exactly, you know, with that laugh specifically. And I don't know who made the decision for the English-language version, but whoever it, it was – fantastic choice because he is creepy in that film and i like that you get to see the transition from straight laced oh there's a vampire whatever you got a dracula problem i don't care i've got a coach at midnight i'll get on the coach and then he goes nuts you know he, he falls under dracula's spell you get to see this transition this range of acting that i don't think you get to see in anybody else in the film I do love in that scene where the three wives are coming for renfield and dracula stands next to him like like who are you coming at? This is my man. <laughs> and, and the three of them back away. It's, and what's it, it's funny if you watch them back away, you see because they're all wearing these long dresses these, with these trains. Mm-hmm. But as they're backing away, they're kind of backing up over those dresses. And you can almost see one of them in the lower left corner, almost kind of trip as she steps on someone else's dress. It's you just have to. Pay real close attention, but it was kind of funny. Well, I haven't noticed that yet, but I'm sure I'm going to notice it every time from now probably, on. Thanks, probably. Thanks, Justin. I get to ruin that little scene for you. <laughs> you know, 
you're talking about the wives and the brides and, and the way they come out of the coffin. What is up with the bee coming out of the little bee coffin? What what is that? I'm not quite sure what that was. I thought maybe he's like reaching for the bee to eat it. Like this is his, you snack? know, this is his, yeah, his his wake up snack. I don't know what that was about. Yeah, that and all the, the like the armadillo. Why is an armadillo yeah, here? Yeah. Oh my god, I thought the same thing. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is Transylvania, right? I don't think they have armadillos. Now, yeah, I mean, I mean, you couldn't find a rat. <laughs> Well, Renfield would have ate them all by that point. So That's so. true. Well, it maybe not at that out. point, but it, 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 left an, it left an impression. I mean, Fred Decker put an armadillo at the beginning of the Monster Squad for that very reason. It, it oh, really? A, yeah, there's an armadillo in there at the very beginning. It's great. <laughs> it's got narts. <laughs> I love that film so much. See, that that's my modern Monster Hunter monster movie that I go to. You can have your Van Helsing. I'll take my Monster Squad. <laughs> now, what did you think about Dracula – untold i loved the score i listen to the film score quite a bit now actually i thought it was an interesting take i feel like you have what my friend Stephen d sullivan called the superman problem turn up at the end yes where if he can make a giant fistful of bats and take everybody out why didn't he do that from the start right but Overall, I thought it was okay. I don't know if I'm going to go back and watch again. What about you? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. I wanted to like it a lot more than I did. I don't know how I feel about Universal not using that as part of their reboot. At first, they were they said they were going to, and they even set yeah. it up. But then I guess it didn't do well enough, so they're starting over again. Well, they're starting over with Cruise. So. I, mean, I know you like Tom Cruise. I do. People hate him. Comes to his religion. I hate it, too. But I think as an actor, I think he can really be amazing, given the right roles. Are you excited about this Universal reboot, the shared universe? <laughs> I want to be. I feel like the success of what Marvel has done with their movies is now pushing every studio to find their own shared universe that they can exploit. And as much as I love the Universal Monsters Occasionally when they would overlap, you know, when you would get Wolfman and, and Dracula or something, uh, even those I didn't really care for all that much. I just, I like them on their own. I don't need Dracula sharing a scene with the creature from the Black Lagoon. I think they're, they're great on their own. Why, yeah, if you're going to do something, do something new. These characters are already so well established in all these different movies. Why go back to that well once again? Just create some kind of new monster, some new take. And But then again, I guess that's what they tried to do with Van Helsing, and that didn't work either for most people. Right, Van Helsing and then Dracula Untold didn't do as well as they wanted right. to. Uh, so they're going to kick things off with The Mummy with Tom Cruise, and uh, Johnny Depp's been signed for The Invisible Man. There's still talks about Scarlett Johansson being in The Creature from the Black Lagoon. I think Johnny Depp is a fantastic actor when he's not buried under tons of makeup and a whacked out wig or hat. <laughs> he can be good. He can be a subtle, really good actor. I haven't seen the, the one where he played the, the hitman yet, but I hear he's fantastic in that. He, he can really do well, but it's to me, it, it's as soon as Tim Burton gets near him is when he starts screwing up. <laughs> I'm hoping that in a film where you almost don't see him for a lot of it, 
might play to his strengths even better. True. So we'll have to see. But I'm actually kind of excited about Johnny Depp doing the, the Invisible Man. Well, and if you go back to the original Invisible Man, that character was already a little manic to begin with. Right. So we know Johnny Depp can do that, you know, depending on how close they want to get to the source. I could see it working. As long as Tim Burton's not directing and there's not a lot of eye makeup, uh, you know, eyeshadow, I think we're fine. Yeah, I think we'll be good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I come down on it. I mean, I love my creature. For me, Creature from the Black Lagoon is synchro saint. You know, you don't you don't need to do anything to it as perfect as it is. So I, I still cringe when when I think about that being redone because I'm afraid it's going to be a CG bloody mess, and yeah. you don't you don't need that. The creature, like you said, that figure is your favorite. It's such an iconic design. Yes, it's so beautiful as it is. My brother has it tattooed on his leg. Wow. Yeah, he loves the creature as well. He's got several creature figures. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in love with Julie Adams. I mean, it's just such a perfect film. Yep. These films are so important. And again, to go back to what we were talking about in the very beginning with Dracula kind of kicking it off. Yeah, there was Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and a few other silent films from other studios even that come out. But without this one, we just don't have it. And I would say not just with the genre itself, but in the the fandom, the monster kiddom, when this got re-released with Frankenstein you know, on the big screen again, and it just turned a huge profit with lines around the block. It really kind of kick-started that monster kid fury that I celebrate every time I do an episode of the show. Well, pretty much every day because that's, that's what I love. I love you know, drink and breathe monsters, but <laughs> – <laughs> No monster tattoos yet, but someday, maybe. We'll see. Do you have any tattoos? No, I don't. Okay. I, I, we'll, we'll get there someday. <laughs> Are you a chicken? <laughs> Come on, no, McFly. I keep telling myself that once I lose a little bit more weight, then maybe I'll do it. You know, i got to prepare the canvas. Right. <laughs> you don't want to stretch it out. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. When all of a sudden the nude girl on your arm starts looking a little droopy. Yeah. So we'll see. But uh, if I were to do one, yeah, Creature would be my first tattoo, I think. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I could do Lugosi too. I see Lugosi. He's just amazing. And to see him in other movies. Have you seen him in many other films? No, not really. I'm not as familiar with Bela Lugosi outside of you know the Universal mm-hmm. horror films. He would play Dracula again in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein for Universal. And that's pretty much it. He didn't really do Dracula after that. He did some other vampire characters, but for the most part, Universal didn't treat him very well, didn't bring him back for other films, but he would go on and do other things for other studios. White Zombie is an amazing film, and again, they highlight his eyes in that movie as well, even more so than in this one. I just don't know why they had to make that film racist. Why's it got to be White Zombie? (laughs) Why's it got to bring that into it? You know, it's a different time. (laughs) (laughs) It's Hollywood, 1930s. What do you want? Yeah, um, what do you expect? <laughs> you know, we're joking, but the, the movie poster really did talk about how she was a white slave, a white girl, a white zombie. So, Yeah, because yeah. back then, that was that was the fear. Yeah. yeah. Again, fear of the alien, fear of the unknown, and just being racist is all you know. But I, I do like the way you, you say that Dracula was – or Bela Lugosi looks so alien. That word hadn't occurred to me. Mm-hmm. But now that you've said it, it, it works perfectly because he does seem not of this place. And he isn't. You know, he is hundreds of years old. He lives secluded in a Transylvanian castle. Coming to uh, England, he, he is literally an alien there. But because of his age and his power and, and that 
the perspective that gives him, he is not like the rest of them, and that put, makes him an outsider. And I hadn't clued into that alienness until you just said that, but it makes perfect sense. Well, then my work here is done. It is. Well done. You can go back to bed. <laughs> Don't ruin the rest of the day. <laughs> well, you know, the alienness from the look, the sound, the feel, the way he dresses, even the way he acts, because Lugosi does have kind of a stagey feel to him. I mean, people do make comments about how he, this feels like a, a stage, by the way, it's filmed. And it's it does have that feel, but I feel like Lugosi is so stoic and solid. And the few times that he does break, it's terrifying. The first time I saw this, I expected him to lash out at Van Helsing the moment he showed him the mirror. Hitting it out of his hands? It made me jump. The first time I saw it, it made me jump. Because this whole time, he's been so put together and straight-laced, and he's wearing the tux, and he's regal, and he's he's the count. And then he lashes out at the mirror. It's a jump scare. It kind of reminds me of that one little scene, and please forgive me for referencing a different movie, but there's one scene in the Lord of the Rings films where Frodo's talking with Bilbo in uh, Rivendell. Okay. And Bilbo wants to see the ring because he hasn't seen it in a while. And, you, I mean, you know the ring and its power over people. As Frodo goes to pull it out and show him, Bilbo goes from looking like his normal self to suddenly lunging forward and his whole face kind of transforms for just a second. And then he pulls back because he realizes what he's doing and he kind of goes back to normal. But that's kind of I think what you're talking about is that just that one moment where you see the monster that lies at the heart of this person. That's a great way to put it. That's a great example and, and a wonderful comparison. And, you know, knowing that Peter Jackson loves his monster movies, I, I don't know. Did, did he did he reference that? I don't know. Maybe. I, I certainly wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Now, I want to ask you, is this film your first – was it your first brush with Dracula? Technically, yes, but in a roundabout way. The, the I first discovered the Universal Monster movies not through the movies themselves but through a series of books by – a publisher called Crestwood House, and they put out these for children, these children's books, uh, thin, hardcover, orange-colored books. One was about Dracula, one was about Frankenstein, one was about the Wolfman, one was about Godzilla, King Kong, and all of them. And I discovered these in the children's section of the school library, and I just devoured them and checked them out over and over and over again. And I'm slowly trying to add them to my library now, even though they're kind of hard to find. Yeah, they must be. Yeah, especially the Godzilla one. But the first time I discovered these movies was through these books. I, I knew the names Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney before I even saw the films. <laughs> so Dracula was my first, or Lugosi was my first Dracula. What about you? My first experience with the story of Dracula, when I was a child, my dad, or um, yeah, it was my dad, he brought home these books, and they were these these small little hardcover kind of comic book adaptations of of uh, novels. I think I had one for the Red Badge of Courage, White Fang, and all those. But then there was one for Dracula. And I'd never heard of the character. I didn't know what vampires were. But as a kid, I kind of dove into it. And to this day, I, I have not forgotten it, but there was just this one panel of Dracula hanging over this woman's neck with his fangs out and his hands kind of talony. And there's just this little bit of blood 
that's dripping down her neck. And as a child, for whatever reason, that image just terrified me to the point where I almost couldn't look away from it. It was, I just, I couldn't stop staring at this blood that had been loosed on her neck by this horrific figure who just looked like a monster. And ever since then, I've always had this fascination with vampires and Dracula in particular. I, I hate the way they've been treated lately. Unfortunately, the vampire myth has been so neutered because of you know, twilights and things like that, that I, I feel like modern or younger audiences probably don't have the respect for some of these villains that they should have because they've been watered down over the years by paltry uh, imitators. Would you say the vampire has been defanged? Huh? Oh, oh. Nobody's ever said that. Yeah. You're the first. You should, you should mark that. You should trademark put it, on, it. Put it on a t-shirt. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, I agree. I mean, you see vampires and Dracula turn up and other things, and it's just it gets watered down, like you said. And and I know that you're a fan of a particular franchise that does have vampires in it and that sort of thing. I'm not necessarily a fan of of the Buffy, but I mean, even something like that, through no fault of its own, it does bring the vampire more and more into the mainstream, which does make it seem softer somehow. I could see that. Yeah. And some of the vampires aren't all that scary in that show. Right. I love Buffy, but if if someone were to say, well, we wouldn't have Twilight if not for that, I probably couldn't disagree and I'd feel bad, but I do love Buffy. But yeah, (laughs) outside of Dracula, though, what have been some of your favorite vampire stories? Well, Lugosi did a film called The Return of the Vampire in the 40s. Uh, It was not for Universal, and it was originally written as a Dracula film, but Universal started saying, well, we've got the copyright, even though they don't. And so the studio had to change the name of the character to something else. I think it's probably even a a better vampire film than Dracula. So Return of the Vampire is fantastic. And I'm going to mention the Monster Squad again. I love the Dracula in that. That Dracula in there, for my money, is one of the best. Dr. Alucard? <laughs> no, that Dracula in there, I mean, when he grabs a little girl and, give me the amulet, you, man, chills, goosebumps. Yeah, did he call her like a little bitch or something? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. You don't call a little girl that. No, no. Mm-mm. You're not yeah. going to make it to the end of this film, buddy. <laughs> but that Dracula is just terrifying. Then, of course, Christopher Lee. From the Hammer mm-hmm. films, and he does add that animal level of aggression, and there are the fangs, and it's bloody, and it's just sexy, but in the wrongest way possible. <laughs> what about you? The thing that I love about vampires, or Dracula in particular, is that it's one of the few monsters that, at first glance, isn't a monster or you could not understand that it's a monster. There's a scene in Dracula where he's just walking down the street in London and watching people go by. And it's that kind of scene that really scares me because he looks like everybody else, but he is a vicious bloodthirsty monster, but he can pass for a regular human. And to me, that's the kind of monster that's scary. I mean, a wolfman is certainly scary, but he looks like a wolf. He looks like a bad guy. He's not going to, you know, except for when he's, you know, not transformed. But usually when they're not transformed, 
they're not bad people. They only right. become bad through this transformation. But with Dracula, he's he's as evil as he can be and looking as normal as he can look. So that's what I love about vampires. But there was a series of books that I read during my brief stint as a as a college student. <laughs> um, they're called The Necroscope, and you may have heard of them. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, uh, Brian Lumley, right? Brian Lumley. Then they're an English – He's an English author, and there are a series of books about this branch of the government, of the English government, that's in psychic espionage. And in the book, we find a character named Harry Koenig, who has the ability to speak to the dead. And through that ability, he gains other abilities. But one of the menaces he uncovers is that there's vampires that exist in our world, but they didn't come from here. They came from a different planet and through some kind of warp, uh, like a wormhole or something, they were able to come to our planet. But they're, they're not your traditional tuxedo wearing kind of vampires. They're much more the, the bestial. I mean, they're incredibly intelligent and aristocratic in their own way but they are still bloody monsters and they look it and they act it and that series of books i don't know how many is in it now i just ate them up when i was younger i've not read those i've had them recommended to me i'm familiar with lumley because of the lovecraft uh connection uh-huh. that he has and i'm you know, a huge lovecraft fan i did read a series of books by author mick farron uh the first in the series was called The Time of Feasting. And again, it had the vampires and it had that outer space kind of alien connection. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have a scene where they're going further back in vampire history and they eventually get to a point to where there's nobody on the earth. I mean, it's pre-human time and UFO shows up and drops off some vampires. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but <laughs> uh, they, they talk about where they came from. And again, they're still very regal and aristocratic. That word? Aristocratic. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. It's an interesting take. I mean, I, I liked it okay. I haven't gone back to reread it in years. In fact, I hadn't even thought about it until you mentioned uh, Lumley. So. Did you ever see the Space Vampire episode of Buck Rogers? <laughs> I'm sure I have. Oh, God. I remember watching it as a kid. It terrified me because he looked a lot like Nosferatu. He did. You know, kind of had that bald pale look yeah he was terrifying i'm looking at it now and uh you know thank you google image search and uh Uh, wow as a a child (laughs) and he was after wilma and she was my first crush Uh uh-oh you do not go after wilma darling not while i'm around or at least buck um and they were able to stop him but it was still terrifying but i think the scariest vampire i ever saw was when I watched the original airing of Salem's Lot mm. when it came on TV when I was a kid. At that time, I, I was a big reader, but I read more fantasy. I had never read horror. And so I had no idea what Salem's Lot was about, but I'd seen some trailers as a kid, and I thought, oh, you know, that looks kind of interesting. We'll go ahead and watch that. Uh, and I was scared pretty much throughout the whole thing as I was watching it, but there was that scene. Have you seen it? Oh, I have. Uh, I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. Remember that's and why I'm even asking if you remember. Of course you do. That scene in the hospital mm-hmm. when the boy is sitting in his bed and that fog comes rolling in across that wall of windows and it's just that heartbeat kind of music mm-hmm. and he sits up 
and looks out those windows and then as that other boy just comes floating across the glass and then comes up and just starts scratching at it. Even thinking about that right now is just making these things crawl up my back. It's, it was terrifying as a child. And I think if I watched it today, I would probably still have heart palpitations. No, it's good. It was just something so horrifying about seeing a little boy, just an innocent boy, turned into this horrific, just terrible, horrible creature that wanted nothing more than to kill his friend and drain him of blood. And it's it's still just terrifying. To me, the thing that scares the most scares me the most about the vampires is that they could blend in so well. And you mentioned that scene in Dracula where he's walking through the London street, which is just a creepy scene to begin with. I used to think I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up, and I was kind of making shot on video movies in the 80s and 90s with my friends. And I used to joke that the easiest low-budget monster movie to make would be a vampire because all you got to do is put a couple things in it and you're good because they can yeah. pass for you. And you know, I might have been joking then, but there's a lot of truth to that. They could pass for anybody. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, does add a level of scare and unknown that you never know when they're going to strike. You never know when they're going to lash out and grab that mirror and knock it out of Van Helsing's hand. I mean, they could be standing right next to you. I could be talking to one right now. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's why all of my windows are covered. <laughs> i tell you what, Texas would be a terrible place for a vampire to set up. <laughs> Seems like there was. I'm, I'm trying to think. There was a vampire film shot in Texas or set in Texas with a uh, was a sundown with Bruce Campbell. I know that John Carpenter's vampire. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because here's an interesting thing. That movie was based on a book, <laughs> but the book is so different. Well, sort of. It, it is, but and also better. The book was written by a guy named John Stakely. Pardon the pun. <laughs> His father owns or at least he used to own a Chevy dealership in my area because I live in the Dallas Fort Worth area of Texas and so John Steakley grew up in this area and when I first read his novel Vampires which originally in the book uh, the S was a dollar sign Mm -hmm. because these vampire hunters did it for money of course they were ultimately backed by the Vatican but they were actually bounty hunters who went after vampires for pay. But anyway, part of the book t- took place in this tiny little town called Cleburne, Texas, that is no more than, when I read it, no more than 10 miles from where I lived. Oh, wow. I had been in and out of that city so many times. And when I read it, it, it just blew me away that somebody actually knew this city existed or town and actually used the town uh, in ways that I knew to be familiar. And it was only later that I found out that he actually had lived and grown up in this area. And so, of, of course, he used Cleburne. Of course, he used Dallas, which plays into the movie. Uh, unfortunately, he only wrote one other book, which was a science fiction book before he ended up killing himself. And that's really sad, but there's not, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of, of Texas vampires. I think if I was a vampire, I would unfortunately go the 30 days of night route, Mm. you know, head up uh, Alaska way when the sun doesn't rise for like six months or something. Right. That'd be my place. 
Uh, one, I didn't realize Stakely had committed suicide. That's that's a shame because I also have read Vampires and really liked it. And I liked the movie quite a bit too, but for different reasons. You know, the Alaska 30 Days of Night. I think I saw that in a Tales from the Crypt episode too in the 80s where Alaska is the setting of where the vampires turn up. You know, it's such an iconic monster. I, I think the minute you put vampire into something, if you treat it right, you've got a scary movie. Or a scary story, really. Have you written a st- You've not really written or released any vampire stories, have you? The only vampire story I've written, I wrote a as a Western horror story, short story, that a friend of mine, Scott Roche, was putting together a collection of short stories that took place. It was kind of a, a combining of the Old West with the Bushido Code of Japan. I remember you talking about that on the show on Dead Robot Society. It's it's a really fascinating idea, and I, I loved what the idea that Scott had. But I told him, I said, if I'm going to write this, I have to I have to add a genre element to it. I can't just write a western. It's just not going to come out of me. Mm-hmm. And so I asked him, would it be okay if I did vampires? And he he was just fine with that. Uh, and so the story that I wrote is called uh, the Dragon and the Sparrow, and it's about this guy who used to be a, a marshal with this um, group that because it takes place on a different earth and a different time, there's different government and, and so forth. But anyway, he used to be a marshal and he tried to save this town from an attack of vampires who in this story are a lot more bestial than you find in Dracula mm-hmm. um, and failed. And so he spent the rest of his life trying living in this town trying to help rebuild it and be of service to the survivors because he felt like it was his penance for failing to to save the whole thing and then a couple of decades later a person comes calling on him because it seems like there's a potential vampire uprising somewhere in in uh, Colorado and they want his help and so he goes to help fight them very cool. And is that out now where people can... Yeah, it's on Amazon. Is it? And uh, Starla Hutchton did a fantastic cover for it. I absolutely love it because it, the cover is a an, like an Old West man's head with like the, uh, and a hat with a, the sword kind of coming across it and reflected in the sword are these vampire fangs. I, I love it. I think and I, I love the story. I love that Scott let me really kind of open it up and, and, and play with it instead of forcing it to stick to specific rules. He's, he was, he was pretty open and letting me do what I wanted. And I love playing around with stuff like that. I would love to write though a Dracula, a, an official kind of, you know, officially Dracula story, <laughs> but I, I have to put a twist on it because that's just the kind of writer that I am. Sure. Well, you would kind of have to do that now anyway. I mean, there's been so many Dracula stories. I feel like you can't do just a straight up anymore, right? Oh, absolutely. No, you can't. And so I don't even know if I should be sharing this idea because it's one I plan on coming to at some point. But (laughs) if I can cut in here real quick. uh, Yeah, Justin and I ended up talking about a story that he's going to be working on. And later on in the conversation, I actually told him a little bit about a couple of stories that I'm working on really didn't have anything to do with the conversation we were having technically. So I'm going to skip that. Now, Justin will probably be back on the show in the future, especially if he writes and releases the novel that he told me about. So stay tuned for that. 
Okay, back to our conversation. But I would recommend uh, you know, a couple of other vampire books out there, stories in, uh, I think it was 2014, maybe 2015, uh, an author by the name of Kane Gilmore put out a book called The Crypt of Dracula, which I would highly recommend. Um, I know Kane. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that book quite a bit. Van Helsing does turn up in there as well, and what he and the hero do to prepare the hero to fight the vampires just awesome. So I love that story quite a bit. And then you mentioned Texas. Robert E. Howard's my favorite writer. Mm-hmm. Love me some Howard. He did a vampire story called The Horror in the Mound. If you haven't read this, I highly recommend it. The Horror from the Mound. It's a Texas vampire tale, and because most of Howard's out there all over the internet, probably public domain, although there's some question, would highly recommend checking that one out as well. It's called what again? The Horror from the Mound. Gotcha. Keep in mind that Howard... Um, Man of his time, probably a little racist, so there's a little bit of that in there. Not as much as, say, like in Pigeons from Hell, but it's still there. So I'm just keep that in right. mind. But it's still a great, great story. I'm always able to separate the time from the yeah. story. Yeah, well, you kind of have to, especially, you know, for somebody who watches all these monster movies that I do, you get into the 40s and you get the one black character who's, oh, you know, all bug-eyed and scary. <laughs> you know, they, they got paid well, but... Did you ever see the vampire movie... With um, Hamilton, George Hamilton. Oh God! <laughs> Was it Love at First Bite? Yeah, I think so. But that's there's a scene where he's a bat, and he's flying around, and somehow he gets in this black family's apartment, and they start swinging bats and and um, mop handles at him, going, "Get that black chicken!" It is so racist, but I laughed. And I, I will probably laugh at that till the end of my days. He's here at last. Good evening. Count Dracula comes to New York in a story of blazing caskets. Smoking. Burning passion. I heard the rooster grow. <laughs> it's explosive. When you come back tonight, it's okay to use the front door. Sensational. Oh my God, are you biting me? Love at first bite. Rated PG. The number one comedy hit of the year is now playing at a theater or drive-in near you. I haven't thought about that in years. Oh, man, that's an old one. Not as old as Dracula, but... What, what about Blackula? Have you seen Blackula? No, I never have. Oh, man, Blackula's fun. You shall pay Black Prince. I press you with my name. You shall be Blackula. Blackula, the Black Avenger, rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother, deadlier even than he. Blackula, he thirsts for your blood, he hungers for your soul, more horrifying than Dracula. The Black Avenger, Blackula, an American international release, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Is, is it? Is it got a lot of jive? Yeah, I mean, it's a black exploitation vampire movie. It's uh-huh. great, you know, and William Marshall as the vampire in then modern day seventies. It's great. I, and I like some black exploitation. I'm actually shocked that I never have seen it, but I'll have to fix that. Yeah, there, there was a follow-up, Scream, Blackula, Scream, which is also good, but yeah, Blackula is where it's at. Okay. Highly recommend that one. It might be a good 
black exploitation film as well. You know, we have gone all over the map here. I want to bring it back to you, Justin. Where can people find you online? Oh, well, I have a website. It's justinmcumber.com. You can find uh, links to all of my books there. I've got four novels presently published. Um, two of them are Urban Fantasy, the uh, Born of Fire trilogy. I've, I will be writing the third one hopefully this year. What I'm planning on anyway. And I do have a science fiction novel called Haywire, but my horror novel is called Still Water. And it's very much a Lovecraft inspired. If you take Lovecraft, add Silent Hill to it, those were the two <laughs> biggest. It's terrifying. In, two biggest influences on me to write that story. And it's ancient gods rising up. How do you stop them? That kind of thing. And right now I'm editing the sequel to that. I was going to ask you about that because when you were on the Dead Robot Society, you'd mentioned maybe doing a follow-up. So it is coming? Yeah, I've, I've, unfortunately I've been working on it forever, but I am near finishing the final editing pass on Fragile, which is the follow-up to it, which takes one of the characters from Stillwater and then follows their further uh, investigations into the supernatural. Uh, and it's more about a witch. Cool. That sounds great. I, I liked Stillwater quite a bit. So thank you. Sign me up for a copy. When it's done, I'll, I'll, I'll order one. You got our sale right here. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll hit you up for two. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you heard this while we were talking, but that clink clink sound of like a whole 29 cents being added to your bank account was me <laughs> buying a copy of the dragon and the sparrow. So. I'll go get me a pack of ramen. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I've mentioned the Dead Robot Society quite a bit. You're available in the archives over there, but you are currently still on the Hollywood Outsider podcast. Yeah, a, a guy named Aaron Peterson, who I had come to know through a friend of his that I knew from another website. We got chatting one day, and, and he said that he had had a, a website a while ago called The Hollywood Outsider, but he never did much with it and was thinking about doing a podcast where we talked about movies, television, uh, reviewed films, and, and whatnot. Would I like to be a part of it? And I'm like, hell yeah. I love watching movies. I love watching television. And I love talking. So <laughs> you, have, you just hit a lot of my uh, favorite things. And so I've been doing that one for – I think we've been doing it now for about three years give or take a few months. Uh, it's a very easy podcast for me to do because I don't have to record it. I don't have to edit it. I don't load it. I don't pay for it. I don't write up the format. I just come on, be my normal charming self, and then I get to go to bed. And so it's very easy for me to be a part of that. Whereas with the dead robots for a long time, it was a time expense. It was a money expense. And then as I, when I first stepped away, I still continued to pay for everything because I didn't want the show to end just because I wanted to step away from it. But now um, Paul, Scott, and Terry are completely in control of the Dead Robot Society. And I really couldn't be happier that those guys are running it than I am. So it's still in good hands. If you're a writer and you're looking to hear what some – uh, you know, some published authors, whether it's through traditional publishing or through self-publishing, are up to how they made it, how they succeeded, what are the things they learned. Give that podcast a listen. I, I'm i not on it, but I still highly recommend it. You know, I said this when I had Scott Roche on the show, and I, I don't remember if I put it actually on the podcast or not, but the Dead Robot Society has been 
a steady part of my podcast diet from the first time I discovered it when it was you and Ryan and, and Terry. And I appreciate everything that you guys have put into that show and gals because, you know, Eliana was part of the show for a while. Everything that everybody, you guys put into the show, you know, I might not have agreed with everything, especially some of the horror <gasps> comments, you know, that Terry would say, but, um, <laughs> I still consider you guys, you know, some of my go-to guys when it comes to writing inspiration and writing podcasts. And I want to thank you. I've got some writing projects coming up this year myself, one including a Dracula. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be feeling like I could tackle some of this stuff, if not for some small part uh, of listening to the Dead Robot Society. So thank you, sir. You know, before we wrap up, I've got one more thing I'd like to do with you. Sure. Now, I... I try to do this with everybody at least once on the show, at least when I remember. We have a game here on Monster Kid Radio that we call the Classic Five. And I've got a deck of cards here. One of these days, I'll make it available to the public. But I've got a deck of cards here, and it's nothing but questions regarding classic monster movies. This or that, what's my favorite, what's my least favorite type movies. They're totally random. I'm going to shuffle them up. I'd like to draw five cards of them and uh, have you uh, give it a go. Hit me. You ready? All right, here we go. Question number one. What classic monster movie would you like to see as an animated remake? Probably Creature. Okay. I think it lends itself to animation because it's got the underwater, it's got the out of water, uh, it's got the boat um, going around, it's got the jungles surrounding it. I think that would make for a pretty easy and quite pretty animated yeah, story. You can make it 3D too like it was originally. Mm-hmm. All right, card number two. Oh, what prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? I want uh, Van Helsing's glasses. <laughs> Those thick bottle, Coke bottle bottom glasses. There was something about them that it's almost like with those he could see into dimensions you and I can only guess at. Yeah, I, I see a story in that. Could be. You know, yeah. I I saw on one of those stupid pawn shop shows. <laughs> they had, and it was real because people really made them, a vampire killing kit. And apparently these were quite popular in Europe um, like a 100 years ago or so. People would actually put a kit together that had a cross and silver, holy water, stakes, the whole nine yards. And when someone said, oh, no, these these were real. People made these. I thought, I want one. And then they <laughs> gave the price for it. It was like a couple grand. I don't want one that badly. <laughs> but still, can you imagine having that in your house on a pedestal? Just my kit for killing vampires. That would be so ballsy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Card number three. Rod Serling or Alfred Hitchcock? Oh, Serling. I am not a psychological horror guy. Okay. I've never found serial killers scary. I've never found anything that was purely psychological to be scary. There has to be some kind of supernatural element to it, which is odd because I'm not really a, a religious guy. Mm -hmm. I don't have a deep spirituality to me. Yeah, if it's a movie about a like a possession or some monsters from the from coming out of the dark, those terrify me. So I would have to go with Rod Serling over Hitchcock. And I'm, I'm sure my friend Aaron Peterson is if he hears this will scream bloody murder because he is a <laughs> Hitchcock aficionado. But I gotta go with Serling. Okay. Okay. All right, card number four. Okay, it has to do with horror hosts. So like Elvira and the like. 
Okay. Do you prefer them to interact with the film or just shut up and show the movie? Uh, I like it when they can interact with it and, and not be like they are insulting. Okay. If they actually love what they're watching, even if they sometimes crack jokes at its expense, if I can sense the love, then it adds to what I'm watching. If I feel like they're just being snarky for snarkiness sake, then I don't care for it at all. But if I think Elvira had a, an appreciation for horror mm-hmm. and her kind of her place within it. And uh, I liked her quite a bit, not just because she was extremely beautiful and, and uh, well, uh, well bodied, but she was also very charming. And uh, I, I liked uh, seeing her do her thing. So, yeah, I like it when they can interact with it, but in a loving way. Right on. Okay. And card number five, and I, you know, I love when I do this game with people and, like, the perfect card comes up. This one, totally random, but I think it's a great way to end, considering how we first started talking about getting you on the show. What character from a classic monster movie would you want as an action figure? Are we talking the monster or one of the other characters? Just the character. Could be any of the characters. Frankenstein. Not the monster, but the scientist. Yeah. Give me him standing amidst all those Tesla coils and everything else. He's alive! <laughs> Looking up at the heavens. Oh, love that. That's good stuff. I got chills, man. <laughs> I got chills. That's a great scene. Justin, thanks again for taking the time to appear on Monster Kid Radio. We'll make sure there's links to your website and your Amazon page in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. And best of luck with your future books. Thank you so much, Derek. I, I hope I get to be on again. <laughs> You can find out about Justin over at justinmacumber.com. And that's Justin spelled, well, the way you spell Justin, M-A-C-U-M-B-E-R.com. There will be a link in the show notes to his website as well as his Amazon page. So you can see all the different books and short stories that are out there with his byline on it. And I can tell you, since I had that conversation with Justin, I have since read The Dragon and the Sparrow. And yeah, it's pretty darn cool. You can hear him on old episodes of the Dead Robot Society podcast or tune in to the Hollywood Outsider at thehollywoodoutsider.com to hear him talk about movies. And again, Justin, thank you for being on the show. And take care of that creature from the Black Lagoon action figure, would you? Because, well, you know, respect. Listen to the flight of the vampire bat summoned from Hades to kill, to destroy. See Kiss of the Vampire in color. Blackula is back. All new. All powerful. <laughs> Blackula, the Black Prince of Shadows, rises from his grave to stalk the earth again in the all new motion picture chiller Scream, Blackula, Scream. <laughs> Blackula returns, quenching his thirst for blood in a death trap for his enemies. Blackula, more horrifying than Dracula, screaming for revenge against a voodoo cult of evil. See ah! Scream, Blackula, Scream, all-new, rated PG, starring William Marshall, Don Mitchell, and Pam Greer, the sensuous godmother of coffee. You were terrified at Blackula. Now the Prince of Shadows returns in Scream, Blackula, Scream! Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space and the wall people. 
A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. Wednesday is March 9th, and it's important to us monster kids, especially us monster kids who love the films of Christopher R. Mim. Since 2006, Chris and company have been putting out what at one point he used to call good, bad monster movies or good, bad science fiction films. You know what? They're not good, bad films. They're good films. They're retro films. They're done in the style of the classic 50s movies without making fun of them. They're fun to watch, but they're not talking down to the films or the fans of the films. They just happen to be movies set in that era. And in 2006, it all started with The Monster of Phantom Lake. Now, in various interviews and conversations, Chris will tell you, when they made the monster of Phantom Lake, there was no grand scheme. There was no grand plan to create what is now known as the Mimiverse. It was just a movie that they were going to do. They being him, Josh Craig, family, friends, everybody else who got involved in the production of the movie. At one point, they joked that by the time they were done, they were just going to have a garage full of extra DVDs of the monster of Phantom Lake. That didn't happen. In fact... They enjoyed making that movie so much, they went on to make another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Now, there have been a lot of changes behind the scenes. Some of the people that were involved in the Mimiverse at the beginning aren't there now, or is it vice versa? You know what? Doesn't matter. So many people have contributed to the Mimiverse in all of these incredibly fun movies. Now, I'm going to be doing something later on this month to commemorate the Monster of Phantom Lake in particular, but what you can do is join us on Wednesday, March 9th, for what Christopher R. Mim himself has called Monster Day. And this is a big deal. The 10th anniversary of the release of The Monster of Phantom Lake. It was unleashed on the world on March 9th, 2006. So here's how we're going to celebrate Monster Day here on Monster Kid Radio. We're going to do some hashtagging. I know not everybody digs the hashtag, but here's what we're going to do. On Wednesday, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram, hashtag Monster Day. What are you going to hashtag? Well, 
How about some pictures of you doing something particularly monstrous? Maybe posing in front of your monster movie collection. Do you have any monster action figures? Monster movie posters? Any pictures of you with some classic monster movie actors, actresses, directors, whatever, from cons in the past? Hey, were you ever at a premiere for one of Mim's movies? Post a picture from that. Or maybe just provide a link to some of your favorite classic monster movie trailers on YouTube, or just post what some of your favorite classic monster movie monsters are. Hashtag Monster Day. Now, I'm going to be checking on the various social media networks throughout the day. I'm excited to see what you guys and gals post. I'll try to post some things myself as well. Now, Monster Kid Radio does have an Instagram account. I'm trying to use that again. I kind of go through cycles, but I figure Monster Day is the best time to bring it back. So look at Monster Kid Radio on Instagram. The same thing with Twitter. I'm going to start doing some things on Twitter for Monster Day. And then, of course, on Facebook. That's where I'm at primarily social media wise. Let's make Wednesday Monster Day. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, thanks to Justin McCumber for being part of the show this week. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys and gals checking out the show and sticking with us to the bitter end to where I can tell you about MonsterKidRadio.net, our website where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to everything we got going on here. We have a Facebook group you can get involved with. You can find a link to that at our website. We have a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show. There's a place for you to subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio Gazette, the monthly e-newsletter that comes out once a month at the end of the month and it's filled with bonus content relating to Monster Kid Radio as well as a few extra things here and there, bells and whistles and crosswords. I put a crossword puzzle in last month and I think I'm going to do it again this month. So if you want to get in on that, subscribe to that over at monsterkidradio.net. Put your email address right there on the right-hand side of the page underneath the head of Rondo Hatton. Next week on Monster Kid Radio... We're going back to giant monsters. We've got Tony Wendell from The Gigantic Project. And we're going to talk about the 1961 giant monster movie, Gorgo. Fire! No motion picture of our time has ever unleashed sharp spectacle of such scope and realism as up from the depths of prehistoric mystery rages, Gorgo. The headlines of the world blaze the fabulous story of this monster from another age, catapulted from some vast sub-ocean cavern by unprecedented volcanic action. And the headlines scream the story of the reckless skin divers who captured the monster and put it on exhibition. Sam! Pull out! Drop the net! What do you think you're doing? Hey, take it easy. I can't let him go back to see where he belongs. Why? Maybe to save their silly skins for you. Hurry, hurry, hurry to see Gorgo. But the headlines do not record the story of a little boy who had a curious sympathy and understanding for the fantastic creature. What strange secret does he know that scientists only suspect? You trying to say there may be a fully grown one of these things around somewhere? How big would a full grown one be? An approximate guess. The infant. The adult. That would make it nearly 200 feet tall. Wreaking terrible vengeance against the civilization that has captured its offspring. Towering over the cities of the world as millions flee its awesome terror. Prepare! Prepare Nothing can stop it. Defying the force of the army. The might of the Navy. Line number one, Terry. 
Ready to open fire, sir. File one. Even the fury of the jets. In a crashing crescendo of sights never before beheld by human eyes and adventures never before experienced by any man or woman. And what the heck? I'll go ahead and tell you what's coming up in two weeks. In two weeks, we've got filmmaker Joshua Kennedy coming back, and we're going to talk about another movie that... Well, I didn't do this on purpose. Next week is Gorgo. The week after that is The Gore Gun, the Hammer film from 1964. It has been said that every legend and myth known to mankind is not entirely without some truth. It was here, under a full moon, in the little village of Van Dorf, that an ancient legend suddenly, terrifyingly, came to life. Doctor, you'll perform an autopsy. On a body that's turned to stone? said that when mortals looked upon her face, they were turned to stone. Leave Vandorf before it's too late. What is it you're afraid of? I'm afraid for you. Or of what I may discover, if I remain. We want you out of this house, mister. Now. For 2,000 years, Magera the Gorgon had kept her evil peace. But now this strange, unearthly creature returns to petrify every human being who crosses her path. <coughs> Starring Peter Cushing as the doctor, did his strange talents direct him to medicine or murder? Christopher Lee as the professor, confronted by a conspiracy of silence that paralyzed a village with terror. Magira died 2,000 years ago. It's her spirit we're concerned with today. It's found a resting place in somebody. Also starring Richard Pascoe, Barbara Shelley, Michael Goodliffe. The terrifying realism of the Gorgon. She comes to life and brings death to all those who look upon her face. Carla! I am waiting for Carla, Mr. Hines. Why are we talking about that with Joshua? Well, that happens to be one of his favorite Hammer films. And he has wrapped production on his latest movie, The Night of Medusa, which... With a title like that, you can see it obviously took some inspiration from the Gorgon, as well as a couple of other movies. We'll talk about that here in two weeks. Next week is Gorgo, and this week, the show has come to an end. Thank you for listening, everybody, and big thanks to the band Genki Genki Panic for allowing us to play their song, Two Girls, One Casket, on this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. It is from their album, Spooky Fingers. You can find them at GenkiGenkiPanic.Bandcamp.com. Just so you know, Genki is spelled G-E-N-K-I, so double that. 
panic.bandcamp.com. And if you find them on Facebook, they recently posted a list of their upcoming shows. They're based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. So if you're in that area, I'm sure you will hear about this. But at the end of this week, they've got a show at the Grand Fallon for the Road to Nightfall competition. On March 12th, they're having a release party for Spooky Fingers at JJ's Bohemia. And this is all in Chattanooga, Tennessee area. But they're not staying in Chattanooga. They've got a show Wednesday, March 16th in Atlanta, March 23rd in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They're going to be in Jersey on March 24th, Massachusetts on the 25th. You know what? I'm going to put a link to this list of their shows at our website as well at monsterkidradio.net. Go check them out. And if you do, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial. No derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Two Girls, One Casket. That belongs to the band Genki Genki Panic. Again, Spooky Fingers is the name of the album. Head over to their Bandcamp page and check it out. Talk to everybody next week. <laughs>